Well, this morning I want you to open your Bible to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1. As we study the Word of God together, it is such a joy to be able to open our Bibles in freedom, to study God's Word together. You know that we are in a little series in Colossians chapter 1 entitled, A Faithful Ministry. A Faithful Ministry. It's contained within the section of Colossians 1, verses 24 to 29, and there the Apostle Paul gives us a glimpse into his ministry and his calling. It's as though he's writing out for us his ministry job description, and even gives us a bit of his ministerial motivation. And I think it would be well for us, as we dig into Colossians 1, to read this portion of Scripture, verses 24 to 29. Paul says there, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, that is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Often when we read about someone in the Bible, like Paul here, I think we assume often that because they are so much unlike us, we can't relate to them. Because maybe they are so far removed from us in time, geography, and so many other ways, that we really don't have anything in common with them at all. You ever had that sensation when you're reading your Bible, you're reading about someone's struggle in the Scripture, someone's joy, someone's exaltation, and you really say to yourself, I really can't relate to this person. It's so far removed from me and my situation in the 20th century. What do I have in common with this person of the Bible? What are the implications of this person's life for my life? Do they really have anything to say to me today, now? Well, some may think that, and I have been tempted to think that before, but really that could not be further from the truth. For in the Word of God, and for what the Word of God contains, there is much for us to relate to. Paul, the Apostle, indeed was an Apostle chosen by Jesus Christ. He did receive many revelations directly from Christ himself. He was God's chosen man to the Gentiles, and all of that is true. And all of that being true does not necessarily relate to us as an apostle. 
We've never received a revelation from Jesus Christ, and yet, with all of that being true, Paul was still a man, as we are, men and women. Paul was a human being. He was like you and me. He had faults and failures and sins and desires and motivations. He had all of that. And when he was called and commissioned as an apostle to the Gentiles, he was called into a ministry. And while we may not be able to have the same kind of ministry to the degree or kind that the Apostle Paul had, we are nonetheless also commissioned by God to minister to other people, aren't we? We're called by God to minister to people. We're challenged, just like Paul, to minister to the people that God has given us in our sphere of influence. And if the Apostle Paul was endeavoring to live out a faithful ministry in his own life, to carry out with full completion and maximum effort all that God had called him to do, are we to experience any less a faithful ministry before God? Any less a desire and a motivation and a link with Paul to be used by God and to be faithful? I say that we are indeed called to a faithful ministry. Whatever it is, if it's a vocation like mine, if it is not your vocation, but your commission and calling by God to minister to other people, and if you are a Christian, it is, you are to be no less faithful, I am to be no less faithful than the Apostle Paul himself. We may not have the capacity of giftedness that Paul had, we may not have the, the exact commissioning that Paul had, but we are no less ministers, even if it is with a small m. We are called by God to minister for Christ. And whatever God had given Paul to do, he did it with all his might. And whatever God calls us to do, we must fulfill our faithfulness in ministry as well. You must serve the Lord in whatever capacity he's given you. And you must faithfully complete that work to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And this was precisely, exactly the mindset that consumed Paul. He was intent on being a faithful minister. And what he does in verses 24 to 29 of Colossians 1 is to describe for us what his faithful ministry looked like. If you have ever wanted to know exactly what was in the mind of Paul, that which motivated him for ministry, it is outlined for us here. In fact, what he does in these verses is give us four definitions of a faithful ministry. Four key principles, four rules, four components to a very faithful ministry. You remember that last time when we covered this text, we looked at the first one, didn't we? And we said that the first key definition of a faithful ministry is this. A faithful ministry is defined by rejoicing in your suffering for Christ on behalf of others. That's contained for us in verse 24. I'll say it again so you can write it down and meditate upon it as I preach to you. A faithful ministry is defined by rejoicing in your suffering for Christ on behalf of others. 
Paul says that is the, the key. That is the first and foremost way that he was called and commissioned by God to have a faithful ministry. You remember I said to you that from the book of Acts, Jesus Christ himself said about Paul, after Paul was causing so much suffering on believers, that Paul himself, when he was called to Christ, that he in his ministry was also called to suffer much. Jesus himself said, he will know of the things for which he must suffer. Don't you know that the Apostle Paul would know about that in the revelatory conversations he had with Jesus Christ himself? Jesus, no doubt, reiterated time after time to Paul the things that he was going to experience in his faithful ministry, the things for which he must suffer. Paul knew that. He knew that that was part and parcel of what it means to have a faithful ministry. I think that's why he could say later on to Timothy, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Remember I said to you last time, if you do it right, you'll suffer. You do your ministry rightly, you'll suffer for it. And Paul certainly knew what it was to suffer for Christ. And he defined for us a faithful ministry, and that very definition is our suffering. Paul suffered tremendously in order to faithfully carry out his ministry. He even proclaimed to the Galatians this statement, My children, my spiritual children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is fully formed in you. He gives us the analogy of birth pain. Carrying a child for nine months, laboring, all of the pain, all of the pathos, all of the emotions that go along with, with bearing a child and carrying a child to full term. And that's what Paul uses as an analogy. That's, that's what it's like for me. That's what it's like for me with my spiritual children. I'm in labor until Christ is fully formed in you. I'm convinced that one of the reasons that God the Holy Spirit wanted Paul to write about himself, which I'm sure Paul would otherwise not have wanted to do, was because he wanted Paul's life to relate to us. The very thing for which I said at the beginning we should clearly see as an implication for us, and that is not only can Paul relate to us and we to him, he should and must, and we should and must see him relating to us in our ministry. It's not that he can't relate to us and we to him. It is very much so that we do definitely relate to him. Why? Because he suffered, and we are called to suffer. We ought to be working with those around us until Christ is fully formed in them. And we must be like Paul, that when he knew he was suffering for Christ, he rejoiced. He rejoiced. Look with me at verse 24 of Colossians 1. And I really see two things here in this verse, in his suffering for Christ on behalf of others. The first is that very rejoicing. He says, now I rejoice. He says, I rejoice in my suffering. Remember I told you last time that when Paul suffered, rather than responding disobediently as a pattern, Rather than responding in a way that says, God, what are you doing? 
I don't believe this is the best plan. I don't think you're right here in bringing me through all of these tests and trials and sufferings and afflictions. There has to be another way. It's too hard. It's too much. I can't bear it. Any of that sound familiar? God, it is, it is too much. There must be some other way for me to have a ministry, and there must be some other way for your plan to be accomplished. Paul didn't say that. Over and over and over again, Paul said, no, I rejoice. And he says here, I rejoice in my suffering. I rejoice. It's not that Paul was saying that he was a glutton for punishment. It's not that he was saying that he was masochistic. He wasn't saying, bring it on, Lord, I, I love this suffering. But he was looking beyond the suffering to the goal, to the end result, what God was accomplishing in Paul and what he was accomplishing through Paul's ministry. And I told you last time that you should do a study, and I, I hope some of you did. And if you were to look at several of Paul's writings, let alone the Bible writers themselves, especially the New Testament Bible writers, that many, many times they would link up these two realities, suffering, affliction, and rejoicing. Often. In fact, it really shocked me, it amazed me, how many times the Scripture speaks of both suffering and afflictions on the one hand, and rejoicing and exultation on the other. It really challenged me. And for some of you that didn't take that little exercise to heart and really didn't look through the New Testament, and I challenge you to look at Philippians, say, for example, and other places, First Peter, that you would, by that exercise, see the number of times that suffering and rejoicing are put together. We suffer, that's a fact, that's reality, but our attitude, our internal compulsion is to rejoice that we are counted worthy to suffer for Jesus Christ. And for some of you that didn't take that to heart and do that little exercise, I want to do it with you right now. Turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 1. And I want to see the, the times that Paul says, I'm rejoicing in my suffering. Because if you and I can see this together in its fullness, we're going to have a very faithful ministry. We're going to be rejoicing that God has counted us worthy to suffer for Christ, and with that, it'll catapult us internally with our attitudes into a new dimension of ministry. Notice Philippians chapter 1, verse 7. Paul says, For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. And there he's saying, listen, I'm suffering. I'm in my imprisonment. I'm in the defense and confirmation of the gospel against my detractors. I'm suffering. And yet notice what he says in verse 4. I, even in the midst of my imprisonment, in the midst of my suffering, I'm always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Do you see the word joy there? Joy and suffering. In the midst of my suffering, I have joy. Notice Philippians 1, 17. He says, Some 
proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motive, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. That's probably some who were saying, look at Paul, God has put him on the shelf. God has said, Paul, you're not worthy to preach the gospel, and so you're going to be imprisoned. And I, I'm not imprisoned. God must be saying about me, his motives are pure, he's, he's preaching Christ, he's open-aired, he's unhindered. Paul must have done something wrong, and God has put him on the shelf. Paul says, there are those who preach Christ out of selfish ambition. But notice what he says in verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. You know that took the teeth right out of their argument? Can you imagine that? They're saying, Paul's on the shelf, I'm on the front line, I'm being the person proclaiming the Christ on the cross. And Paul says, listen, I don't know what your motives are. He says in 1 Corinthians 4, I don't even know the motives of my own heart at times. God is my judge. I don't know what's in your heart, but I know this. If Christ is proclaimed, I rejoice. God will ferret out all of the issues in the end. God will determine what is, what is the true motives of man's heart when he comes back. I rejoice. And I rejoice that even in my imprisonment, Christ is proclaimed. Look at Philippians 1, verse 29. He says, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Verse 28. Be in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you and that too from God. And all of that, verse 25 says, that it will continue with you for all of your progress and joy in the faith. I'm rejoicing. For some, it could be concluded that this suffering is not to be joyful, but for you, I just know what God is doing, and I rejoice. I know His plan. I know His purposes. And when you suffer, I rejoice because God is doing His work. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. He says, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, that's real suffering, folks. He's talking about death there. What does he say? I rejoice. I rejoice. And I share my joy with you all. And in verse 18, you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Listen, in the midst of your suffering, you should rejoice with me because I know that in the midst of my suffering, I want to rejoice with you. Suffering and rejoicing. Look at verses 26 to 28 of chapter 2. He says, Epaphroditus, he longs for you, he was longing for you all and was distressed, verse 26, because you had heard that he was sick. Boy, what a, what a statement. Epaphroditus, he was longing for you because you had heard that he was sick. You say, now wait a minute. If I'm sick, the attention should be on me. I'm the one in need. Epaphroditus turns it around and says, he's longing for you because he heard that you heard that he was sick. He's suffering for the gospel. 
verse 27, for indeed he was sick, Paul says, to the point of death. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. In other words, if I knew that Epaphroditus, my, my brother, my son in the faith, were to the point of death, I would have sorrow, and even sorrow above my own sorrow. And he says sorrow upon sorrow. But verse 28, Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice. Suffering, rejoicing. Verse 29, Receive Epaphroditus then in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Chapter 3, verse 1, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard to you. A safeguard? In what way, Paul? In what way is it a safeguard? Because if you despair, if you have sorrow in your suffering, you will not be a faithful minister. It's a safeguard for me to tell you that in the midst of your suffering for Jesus Christ, one of the ways to safeguard your faith is to rejoice. It's to rejoice. It's to see God's plan and to rejoice in it. He says, look in verse 2, there are going to be the dogs in your life, the evil workers, the false circumcision. They're going to be there. If you preach Christ, they're going to respond negatively to you. But you should rejoice. Chapter 4 of Philippians, verse 1. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown. In this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Stand firm in what way? With joy. With joy. Why? Verse 3, because you're going to suffer. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women, at Yodia and Syntyche, who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, in other words, they are true believers, together with Clement, also, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life, who have shared in my struggle. You see the... The word for suffering there, he shared in my struggle. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Paul's a broken record. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. It's a safeguard for you. I want you to know again, and so I'll say it again, rejoice. Why? Because there was such a temptation not to do so. Isn't that true in the Christian life, there, that there is such a temptation not to rejoice when I'm suffering? The question, the kick against the goad, to say, God, I, I don't know exactly what you're doing, but I, I can't believe that this is right. This is the best plan. And God's answer to us through Paul is rejoice. You want to have a faithful ministry? Rejoice. Verse 10 of chapter 4. He says, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I seek from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. And you know one of the components for that contentedness? Rejoicing. Rejoicing. Why? Because Paul knew that as an avenue for rejoicing, it would take him right back to his mindset that he didn't deserve anything. That he deserved hell. That he deserved fire and judgment. He didn't deserve to suffer for Jesus Christ. He didn't deserve to preach the gospel of God. He persecuted the gospel. Isn't it interesting that when Jesus 
slammed him down on the Damascus Road, he didn't say, Paul, Paul, or Saul, Saul, as he was known then, why are you persecuting my people? What did he say? Why are you persecuting me? Saul didn't think he was persecuting Christ. He thought he was doing the Messiah a favor by killing Christians. And Jesus said to the least of these, you've done it unto me. Paul knew what it meant to be content because he knew he didn't deserve anything. And yet he was rejoicing. He says in verse 12, I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering, need. And what is that secret? I can do all things through him. He strengthens me. Christ. Nevertheless, verse 14, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. And I'm rejoicing. Oh, what a message our world needs to hear. What a message the church needs to hear. This is the message that the church needs to hear. First Thessalonians 1, 6. Paul says, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And there it's together in one verse. In much tribulation you're suffering because of receiving the word of God, and yet in your tribulation it is with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 2, verse 2 of 1 Thessalonians. After we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid, amid much opposition. That is suffering. And yet notice verse 14. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did the Jews. And yet, verse 19, For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming? For you are our glory and joy. He's just looking right past his circumstances. He was receiving opposition. The people that he preached the gospel to and who had received it was received, were receiving opposition. And he says, I don't care about that. That's not, that's not anything to me. Because I'm looking beyond my suffering to the goal. And the goal is to rejoice that God is counting us worthy to suffer for Jesus Christ. I can do anything if I know I'm doing it for Christ. I can minister to anyone if I know tangibly that my ministry is being done for Christ on their behalf. You say, how can I know tangibly? If you're suffering. That's how you can know. If you're suffering. And for us, it may not be physical persecution. It may not be imminent death. We may not ever come to the point of shedding our blood for Christ. What does it mean for us tangibly? Long hours? Late nights? Early morning, all-night prayer vigils for people to come to Christ, family members, friends. 
hard study in the Gospels to know who Christ is, memorizing Scripture in order to know how to live the Christian life to its fullness, disciplining and nurturing your children in the Lord. It's hard work, isn't it? It's hard work. And on top of that, if you did that in the way that God would want you, it may even be that as you preach the Gospel message, you'll experience some ostracization, some suffering from people around you, maybe friends, maybe family, maybe co-workers, maybe people at school, maybe even in your own household. But if you do it right, you'll suffer. But if you suffer, rejoice. Rejoice. He says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, I don't want anyone to be disturbed by these afflictions. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know, Paul knew it was coming. And yet he was rejoicing ever more. He was saying over and over and over again, verse 7, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. What? We were comforted in our affliction? Yes, because we knew what it meant for your faith. Boy, what other-centeredness. What selflessness. Well, I rejoice because I see that you are drawing closer and being more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ and no matter what I'm going through, I rejoice because I see you're becoming more Christ-like. Well, I'm not sure I'm there in my spirituality. Are you? Can you rejoice like that? I'm so easily tempted when I'm suffering to focus all of my efforts on myself. The commentator S.R. McPhail said this, You, about Paul, you may occasionally hear the clang of the Roman chain, but you never hear a groan from the brave prisoner. Recently, I was ministering along with Todd and Curtis and James with Mr. Petty, John Petty. You're a member of our church, close to going home to be with the Lord. And he said something very profound. He said, yeah, I'm in pain. It hurts. But he said, I'm not grumbling. I'm not grumbling. I might be groping at times for the strength, for the wisdom in my suffering, but I can never grumble. What a dear man. What a dear saint. And guess what? He is so much more closer to glory than most of us. He's headed that way. I'm a bit envious. Paul was suffering. And yet in his suffering, he was rejoicing. Can you say that today? Can you say that that is true of you? Can you say that you are rejoicing in the goodness of God? Paul says in Romans 5.3, and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. We exult in our tribulations. It almost seems like a non sequitur. It almost seems like an oxymoron. How can I exult in my tribulations? It should be, I exult in my victory. I exult in the successes. I exult when things are going well. 
I think all of these Bible writers are really picking up upon the words of Jesus Christ Himself in the great Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, Matthew 5. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Next statement. Rejoice and be glad. Rejoice. For your reward in heaven is great. And in case you tend to become a little selfish, self-centered, self-focused, he throws in, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And if you needed the, ex- the ultimate example, 1 Peter 2. Christ leaves you an example to follow in His steps. That when He suffered, when He was reviled, when He was threatened, He did not threaten back. He did not revile in return. He uttered no threats out of His mouth. But He kept entrusting Himself to God who judges righteously. Entrusting my soul to a faithful creator in doing what is right. God will ultimately write all accounts on my behalf. Can you wait? Can you wait? Our age is not the age of delayed gratification. Our age is give it to me now. I want it now. Give me all the goodies and suspend all the suffering. Well, that's not what Christianity is all about. Acts 5.41. The apostles, the disciples in the early church were beaten, threatened, jailed, persecuted, reviled. And when they were released, they said this, We are rejoicing that God is counting us worthy to suffer for His sake. Boy, that just catapults us into a different realm. And that's that's the first key definition of whatever a faithful ministry is all about. If you want to know how to be a faithful, godly person, look at your suffering. Look at your affliction. Are you suffering for Christ? Maybe in some small way. Maybe in some large way. Some of us in our fellowship, and you know them, are suffering with physical affliction. Some less so. Either way, we can rejoice. We should rejoice. We must. Hebrews 10, 32 But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. You know what the writer of the Hebrews is saying? You can't take it with you. You don't see a hearse carrying a U-Haul. We can't take it with us. It's going to fade in time. And what we have is a lasting possession. It's called heaven. It's called eternity. Oh, what joy filled Paul's heart when he penned these words to the Colossians. I rejoice in my sufferings. Paul had an eternal perspective. He knew what God was doing, and he rejoiced in it. And because he was a man, it may have been at times that even Paul himself did not fully understand and may have at times 
agonized, groaned, asked God, what is your plan next? Remember when he went this way and the Holy Spirit stopped him? And then he went this way and the Holy Spirit stopped him? And then he went this way and the Holy Spirit said, don't go that way. Paul didn't know exactly what was going to happen perfectly at every point. And then the Holy Spirit said, go to Macedonia and preach the gospel there. And by the way, you're going to suffer some more. What a job description. But you know what? All of that, all of the suffering, all of the tribulation... All of the things that we have in our lives or that we read about with fellow Christians and we groan because of their plight, all of that is known by God intimately, perfectly, omnisciently. And because He knows these things, we can entrust ourselves to Him because He's going to do what is right. Romans 8.18 For I consider the sufferings, Paul said, of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What a promise. And he says later in that chapter, listen, we are in distress, we are in suffering, we are in persecution because people are charging us with all kinds of things and yet who can lay a charge against God's elect? Neither depth nor height nor principalities, nor powers, nor anything created can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Well, what a guilt-edge guarantee that we win in the end no matter what. We win. 2 Corinthians 4, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. And then he says, for momentary light affliction. And I always laugh at that because I say, Paul, you went through far more than I'll ever go through most likely. All of those imprisonments and tumults and beatings and persecutions and sleepless nights and being in rivers and robbers and all of those things. How could that man say momentary light affliction? Because he had an eternal perspective. He said, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. I bet John Petty's rejoicing in that. It is not worthy to be compared. It's off the charts, Paul says. Bill Weddle has struggled with that cancer in his body for a couple of years, and yet I know that in his heart, when he hears these words, you're rejoicing. That God is counting us worthy to suffer for Jesus Christ. And this momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. It can't even compare. What joy fills our hearts. As we close, I want you to notice something else about this text. It just leaped out at me. And it's this. When Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings, I can understand that. Paul says, listen, I rejoice that I know that there are times when I'm suffering, when I'm being beaten, when I'm being persecuted, reviled, charged as a false apostle. I can take that. I can take anything against myself. But notice what he says. 
He's really not talking about his sufferings per se. Oh yes, he's the one involved in the suffering. He's the one enduring the suffering. But look who he says he is suffering for. Notice verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I do share on behalf of his body which is the church. And then he says in verse 25, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit. I mean, he was incredibly selfless for your sake, for your benefit, on behalf of his body, which is the church. Paul is saying that the reason he is suffering and the reason that he rejoices is because of other people and their spiritual development. Can you say that in your ministry? That you exist to be a faithful minister, number one, so that others may be spiritually benefited. And even if you have to suffer in the midst of it, you rejoice. Incredible. Incredible text. That's why I couldn't get past verse 24. It's, it's so magnanimous. It's so huge. It's, it's multifaceted. And remember, don't, don't forget, where is Paul writing these words? In prison. He's writing them in prison. He's chained to a Roman guard. And don't you know that Roman guard is saying, Paul, enough! Enough! Paul, how many times can I hear how a man is made right with God? You know what Paul said later on? It's so funny. Paul is writing to one of those dear churches. He just throws this in. He says, by the way, greet all of those dear believers who are a part of the Praetorian Guard. You know what he's saying by that? He's led several of them to Christ. The ones who are guarding him. Boy, Paul was an evangelist. He was on fire for Christ and he saw the goal wasn't concerned about the trivialities of this life, even if it meant his own suffering, because it was for your sake, he says. Who pair, who moan? For your benefit. Every time that word who pair is mentioned in our New Testament, much of the time it is used of what Christ did for us. 2 Corinthians 5. Who pair Christ on your behalf reconciled you to God? Paul's saying, listen, if Christ can do that for the church in the stead of the church, on behalf of the church, for the sake of the church, I can suffer. I can suffer. And model what it means to see Christ in His sufferings. Remember He said in Philippians 3.10, I want to know Him to such a degree that I actually am asking God to allow me to understand and experience the fellowship of His sufferings. I mean, He wanted it all. He didn't want just the good stuff. He wanted it all. And if suffering was part and parcel of that, he said, give it to me. Because I know what it's going to mean for your sake. John Newton wrote these words. You know John Newton, the famous slave trader, slave handler, who came to faith in Christ and become a, became a, a believer in Christ, a solid Calvinist if there ever was one, and he said these words. God appoints His ministers to be sorely exercised, both from without and from within, that they may sympathize with their flock 
and know in their hearts the deceitfulness of sin, the infirmities of the flesh, and the way in which the Lord supports and bears all who trust in Him. Now that is a man who could later write amazing grace. That's John Newton. Someone else said, The suffering of a brother or sister in Christ is a great source of blessing to the church. Why? For their elevated character is transferred to fellow believers. Folks, this is, this is profound stuff, and, and this has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with God's Word. Are you rejoicing today? You may even say, I don't even know what you're talking about. I haven't suffered that much at all. Well, get ready. Sermon has been delivered. If you suffer, you have been prepared. Rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord and His goodness. Let's pray together. Oh, God. Would it be that You would actually count us worthy to suffer for Jesus Christ? What a privilege. We're not spiritual masochists. We're not asking to be flagellated for nothing. But we are asking that if in your plan suffering is a part, we rejoice in that. And if you choose in your providence to bring it to us, we will welcome that. We will embrace it. We won't run from it. My conception of you, Lord, is so unlike many others who would assume that all suffering and all affliction is to be somehow removed because of the bigness of what God can do in miracles and in transforming. And yet my God is so big, He includes both the removal of suffering and the giving of suffering itself. We serve a big God who has a, a large plan that both includes suffering and the removal of such affliction. Lord, I pray that whatever plan and purpose You have for each of us individually, that we will take it to heart, rejoice in it, so that we might be worthy of the Gospel to which we've believed. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.